Oh, it's your favorite time of the week. All your work is done, and it's time to relax. So come, grab some friends, and let's get lit and join the rotation. You are now in the rotation with Suncoast Normal. We are your host, your Suncoast Normal Executive Board, and we say it's time to legalize it. Time to jump into the rotation. It's Sunday morning and time for the rotation for Suncoast Normal. Good morning. This is Gary Stein, your political director. And to my right is... I, I'm Carlos. I'm, my name's Carlos Hermida. Gary, this, I, you, I, I love that. You like that? It, it's pretty hard to, like, you know, it's pretty early in the morning and, like, there's a lot of words that rhyme there. But, like, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool, actually. It, it is. And <laughs> you... You are at the master's table of public health, and Carlos over here has a master's in business administration. Yes. But we actually have a guest today, which is going to up that <coughs> academic level because we have a PhD who is actually here. So, and I actually have a cool caption for Greg here. There you go. Ah, there, there we go. I'm a smart guy. <laughs> So this is this is really cool because like when we started the rotation in my garage, uh, Greg was actually one of the first guests that came on there. Um, you were like the fourth or fifth show, and I can't remember the topic that we actually talked about, but, but I remember you calling me after the dude that was so cool. You didn't ask me to explain the endocannabinoid system one time during the entire <laughs> show. And it was so refreshing to do something with cannabis and not talk about like, you know, mediocre stuff or, you know, layman stuff. Cannabis. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. It's good to have you on the show. We, uh, good to be know, here. this is an important, uh, uh, particularly because like even is a big part of my life. As most of you know, as my shirt suggests, I own a store here in Ybor City. It's right across from this building uh, that houses this bar called the Bad Me. But there's a building across the street that's called the Lakata building, right? Uh, the Lakatas, as Gary was telling me, were uh, big landowners in Ybor City or big business people here. Back in the 1920s like and 30s, um, yes. But Victor Lakata played a particular ro role in cannabis becoming, you know, this whole reefer madness, yellow journalism being kind of getting all these stigmas behind it for schizo uh, basically saying that cannabis is going to make you go insane. Right? Well, okay. let, let's, I have a couple of pieces of, of graphics and a couple of articles that I, I brought in to, uh, to go ahead and introduce Greg to your audiences in regards to the topic we're going to discuss today. Go ahead, guys, bring up that first picture in regards to the, uh, on Biden. Ah, here we go. I, I call this uh, Biden meets Bertha. This was a... Uh, a, a oh, conversation with opioid abuse but that happened back during the time that we had the primaries going on. And of course, there's Biden sitting there clapping, clapping because the lady on the far right, Dr. Bertha Madras, one of our favorite people, had just finished discussing the fact that she felt that it, when it came to cannabis use to reduce opioid addiction, there just hasn't been a long enough longitudinal study 
for this to uh, to make a difference. And so therefore, it is disrespectful to the patients to even assume that cannabis could possibly treat cannabinoid addiction when in fact it is one of the major causes of increasing amounts of psychosis across the country and, and as you can see that picture biden was clapping welcome to the new america and welcome to the knowledge of the fact that we need to do more work on this and we need to help educate the uh the president-elect and that is where we were, we're coming from. But Bertha Madras was part of what I called the traveling Cassandras that came to the, uh, the Florida legislature over the last two years, sponsored by the current speaker coming up, Mr. Chris, uh, Representative Chris Sauls, who brought not only Madras to talk in front of the, the committees in the House and the Senate, but also a gentleman by the name of Berenson, who uh, wrote a book called Tell Your Children, which is ironically the the, the original name of the movie Reefer Madness, the uh, documentary that was turned into a film which became eventually satire called Reefer Madness as they went ahead and edited and changed the, the film around. And and Mr. Madras was, uh, Mr. Berenson Mathers' basic premise is that cannabis is an evil drug and again, it causes psychosis. And so therefore we do not want it out there for, for adult use, unless, of course, you reduce the THC levels in all cannabis sold to less than 10%. And thus comes their impetus for the uh, the, the, the cap bills, as we heard before. But, what, but in, in regards to psychosis, and you can go ahead and put the picture up, Victor, right now. Yeah, and, and this is basically what started it all. This guy started it all. This is Victor Licata. Um, yeah. and he, uh, was basically a crazy guy, just uh, <laughs> a schizophrenic that became a schizophrenic because it ran in his family. Um, and just so happened to use cannabis to medicate for this stuff. Um, but apparently he was like, I heard he was like smoking weed with a, like a 13 year old boy. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a, a rumor I heard out here in Ebor. He was smoking weed with a 13-year-old, and that was the night that he, he just decided to take an axe and murder his entire family. We're actually two, two blocks away. We're a couple of blocks from the house that it actually happened. Um, and, yeah, it's interesting stuff. Well, you're, you're, not, you're not too far off from the actual, because I had a chance to read the police reports, which wasn't easy because they had actually stolen the, the entire case file, including the mugshots from the... Uh, the Ebor City Police Department. And for a long time, they had a trouble finding it because they needed it for the trials when he was in prison. And, and what, what happened was that Victor, at, at the age of 17, suddenly got uh, the same disease that his older brother, Oscar, did when Oscar broke up a school. And his mother, Costanza, who was a major socialite in the Italian part of Ebor City, made certain that he was able to be given to her recognizance and be treated at home which they were doing actually using cannabis and there was a time when the reporters were talking to 13 year olds in ebor city and saw that there was a preponderance of <laughs> adult use recreational cannabis being distributed, and there was a lack of cannabis available neighborhood and when uh, victor who had already in trouble again for breaking up his school just throwing chairs and things around was brought home and there was no cannabis to to help him with his uh, his illness, which we now call bipolar disorder, but what they call precox dementia, dementia precox rather, which means it's early dementia. He went to kill his, his mother and his father and his sister with an axe. 
uh, for which he was brought to, he was sent to jail for the rest of his life. And because they had found remnants of cannabis in a house, the, uh, the, the story that had come out was that cannabis drove the man crazy and caused him to kill his parents and was the, was the basis for his psychosis, even though his brother had gotten it and his uncle, who happened to be related in more, in more than one way to his mother, because a, a cousin had married, uh, and did also have this situation. And so we've got mm-hmm. these issues of the fact that people have been making some kind of connection between people who have psychosis and people who use cannabis and actually using it to demonize them. So, and yeah, and the point of all that long-winded stuff is oh, basic this is story, to, is history. Ba- basically to show in detail that this is probably the longest running stigma for cannabis. And you, Greg, I know you've been, you've been working to, to get rid of the stigma for quite some time. And recently uh, a study was done on the subject and you wrote an article on the subject. Uh, on this, uh, well, I, go ahead and share the screen. Yeah, and I, I had no idea that that uh, fellow from Tampa um, had a history of using cannabis for medicinal purposes. I mean, that, that story about him, all I know is for the front end of it. I'm not surprised that um, Anslinger's people hid the records on that um, because it's kind of how they came around and did things. It's a tragic story. There's a lot of tragedy that happens in life that sometimes gets misappropriated to, um, well, our favorite demon, you know, different drugs, um, especially cannabis. Um, You know, when I, I I started school in the mid-90s, and um, I never became like a a neurologist or like, I wouldn't say that I'm a schizophrenia, you know, my focus of my work on that is that focus of my work has been on cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. But I always wanted and hoped that my work as a, as a young grad student, you know, where I'm taking the brains out of animals and studying uh, neuroscience, that it would help to um, would lead to some sort of treatments and therapies for, for people with profound neurological psychiatric conditions and schizophrenia has always been something i've thought a lot about um and the uh the the topic that's come up like you said um a really interesting paper came out speaking on this at a time when i was um it dropped in my inbox because i get email alerts from the journal of the american medical association among other things and um, it was a nice little uh, review or look into reanalysis of papers that have looked at the connection between cannabis and schizophrenia. The, starting off with a historical review, I'm not, it's a little scattered, it's kind of early, but um, I think it's really ap- appropriate, Gary, how you start into that that history because you know that is where the whole latter half of the 20th century, you know, war on cannabis uh got got its legs through sensationalizing that story and similar ones and then you know in the um cannabis was most effectively criminalized by the marijuana tax act right in 1937 and uh aside from that kind of uh story getting sensationalized 
wasn't it there's like a psychologist from temple university who testified that he smoked marijuana and he, he turned into a bat and flew around the room <laughs> that, that was that was much. his that was his testimony and not that he like started really <laughs> feeling crazy he he stated that he turned into a bat and uh that kind of thing fed into the popular imagination about um about cannabis and coincided with a massive campaign to remove its presence from the the medical establishment you know um and i mean there's many changes we could go into here like how that happened but so much of the fuel behind reefer madness um was this uh, notion that cannabis it causes a descent into madness and the psychosis schizophrenia um it goes back a long time you know i mean um when um when you look at ancient history and writings about cannabis as medicine which those of us who have advocated for sane approaches to cannabis you know often do i mean we love to look at how the human cannabis relationship dates back before recorded history but even there you know there are some of these fragments of like references to cannabis use as medicine in ancient china um also make reference to the notion that it can you know stir demons or you know dry make you lose your mind um and yeah well i mean and there's one there's a paper a great look at um i think it's the sumerian uh text the sumerian references to cannabis they had like I don't know, multiple different names for it um professor mishulam has a great article that mentions this in the title called ganzingunu where among the different names for cannabis in like the assyrian or sumerian sort of cultures which were massive cultures they lasted for centuries right and cannabis was hugely prominent maybe the most important botanical medicine that they used and there were many different names for it they so- seemed to sort of um, map out what it was being used for um and ganzingunu apparently transliterated means that which takes away the mind um so that on the one hand can point to you know it's long been known that cannabis is a potently psychoactive drug um and one certainly shouldn't go too far as to what that ancient writing means i mean maybe it means taking you out of your head in a good way you know to to sort of um no longer obsess about the details um but my point is there is conspiracy theory right we deal with it more it's so much in our in our face right now um related to politics and and the imaginations of you know global cabals or whatever else but cannabis has suffered from the conspiracy theory that it causes schizophrenia um, for a long time and it has had enormous real world impact because of the fear that it is like a time bomb that can make young people lose their minds and the evidence is uh you know it's understandable that such a psychoactive experience can make people worried that it would do that because you know the beauty of cannabis is includes that you can't die from it but you can take such a enormous dose of thc that you feel like you're losing it um if you're not 
comfortable with the experience or, or know that you'll write it out and it'll all be fine. There's, you know, uh, we all know this, right? You take way too much. Some you can absolutely be covered, be, be controlled with anxiety and paranoia. Um, but that kind of thing fuels an association. I mean, a, a, a the idea that it causes schizophrenia. Um, so does, uh, it, you know, the statistical associations that can come out. Um, the first one appearing in the 80s or so that uh, there was a study of Swedish soldiers and showed that more of them that those who had developed schizophrenia were slightly more likely than those who didn't to have used cannabis. And so this sort of validated the long-time assumption in the in the minds of policymakers, right? It's like, well, it makes you it makes you crazy. Um, in fact, the Schaefer report, when it came out in 1972, had mentioned the fact that in an opinion poll in 1972, 48 percent of the country believed the cannabis use leads to psychosis, leads to, uh, it, to to mental illness. It's weird for me to 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 really think about that in this day and age because we're we're really like segregated and in this bubble nowadays. The faith the the Facebook algorithm doesn't show me people that are voting for Trump or people that are against cannabis and things like that. So we really are this, this country that's divided. And within the cannabis community, the idea that weed makes you go crazy is just like absurd. Like reefer madness is, you know, one of these longest running jokes. Like we should totally get high and watch reefer madness because <laughs> they, it's so funny. It's so outlandish. They yeah. totally go crazy when they smoke that joint. But I mean, it, it, it's weird for me being in my little bubble to think that like people out there actually think that weed makes you go crazy. And it's absolute that within itself is crazy to me. And, uh, but this is a real thing. Like people nowadays still think that you smoke a, you smoke a joint and, and you go nuts. I, I remember why, looking at this meme that like the No to Pot campaign came out with. Uh, you guys remember that where it's like, I smoked a joint and now I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> it's something, you know, but it, it's a marketing tool. Yeah, but you're touching on a real, <laughs> an important piece that, um, you know, you, you still have to, different sides have to engage, right? And um, it's not, the reefer madness is toned down a little bit. Although, you know, Gary, you mentioned it ironic being that Berenson's book used that term, don't tell the children. Of course, he knew very well that was the original title of reefer madness. It's like he was actually, well, the, the irony to me or the, the, the shocking nature is that uh, it's, it's, it's weird to me that someone would actually invoke that in any way as though it were like a history to stand on. I mean, cause it was nothing but propaganda, but the point is there, you know, we, the, the can the, those supporting cannabis as medicine or, you know, um, reform of cannabis policy can't just live only in their bubble and think like, well, we, this is all figured out and there's no risk. And we're just going to keep steaming into towards uh, you know, full on expansion of of access to cannabis because the fears uh, of others are real, and you know these are are not small scientific studies that such as the one that came out 
in the Lancet in 2019 that have That's led the to the idea. I'm sorry. That's the DeForti article you're talking about? Yeah, uh, the the article by DeForti and colleagues. Is a senior author was a Dr. Robin Murray, who's a very prominent figure in the writings about cannabis and psychosis out of Imperial College in London. Um, you know, this article uh, has fueled the, no the notion that um, cannabis of over 10% concentration, THC, um, should not be accessible because that goes over the line. Reefer madness or the, the, the notion of causality between cannabis and schizophrenia um, has just taken the slightly more nuanced approach of, well, as long as it's not too potent, because this isn't your daddy's weed, it's much stronger than it used to be, and now we know if, if more and more people are using it, we're going to see this epidemic of psychosis. And, and in fact, that, those authors really took the liberty of trying to calculate what percent of psychosis in different parts of Europe were due to high-potency cannabis. Um, it was really a shocking amount of liberty taken with a scientific article. But you have people with very prestigious scientific careers like Dr. Madras, someone I've studied under it for a brief period of time, um, and, and highly politically important people um, who see high THC products, they are nervous about the wave of legalization. And, you know, it's, it's possible that in places like Florida or in certain areas that they could be uh, convinced by this, by the scientific approach of saying that we need to, to dial back what's available um, or prevent higher potency cannabis from available from being available and just legalize a sort of cannabis light, you know, with under 10% THC or CBD only or that kind of thing. Um, you know, and I, I saw this uh, comment that I put up on the screen uh, by Johnny on the Facebook live stream that uh, uh, kind of put a point forward to, to me that not the, 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 the idea that cannabis causes schizophrenia with the fact that it can be helpful for, for you know, uh, many mental conditions uh, can do a lot of harm. And there's a lot of doctors that you're talking about, a lot of people that have uh, basically, I mean, I'm assuming uh, have, have given an oath not to cause any harm. Right. I, and I, maybe I'm talking Above about, the, maybe Above I'm talking about the wrong kind of doctor. But, uh, you know, the, these people, these people are, are, are really hurting. There's a lot of people here that aren't getting their medicine because they're reporting that cannabis can cause this schizophrenia. Of course, we have from the, the, at the time of period from the 30s up through now, practically, actually about 10 years ago, we, we suffered from a severe research deficit when it came to cannabis, in, in part because of the fact that uh, they, they put a hold on, on most cannabis research by preventing anybody from having even the precursors to work with in regards to testing anybody. But then they also had skewed research, like in the 50s, where they took six gentlemen who were already in a mental institution and asked them, have you used cannabis? And therefore made the, the uh, assumption that it was the cannabis that caused, the, caused their, uh, their mental illness. These are the type of... Uh, research designs we've had to deal with all these years because again even when the, the uh, 
when they this when the Controlled Substance Act came out, they asked people to do only research on harm. It's the NIDA, the good folks over under NIH who, who work on, on drug abuse, have basically only been talking about harm and never necessarily looking into research as, as to how things can help. Isn't that basically one of the situations we're dealing with, Greg? Well, yeah. I mean, with the Controlled Substance Act, by the virtue of cannabis being inappropriately in Schedule One, I mean, that has never, ever really been based on science. It was contrary, as you know and mentioned, to the, the findings of the Schaefer Commission, which was appointed by Richard Nixon really uh, entirely because there were enough members of Congress that were doubtful that cannabis should be so uh, so heavily restricted. So it's like a point uh, uh, the president was charged to appoint a special committee, which he did stacking it in his own interest to find evidence that cannabis should be strictly prohibited. And they, and they ended up ruling uh, or finding it, that it should not be. Um, and I, I simplify it, but I'm comfortable that anybody looking up that actual history will see that we know what we're talking about with this. Um, cannabis should never have been Schedule One, but by virtue of that, it got locked down in the in this super restrictive mode. And the only institute of the National Institutes of Health that are allowed to work with those Schedule One drugs, at least at first, or to sponsor research for it was the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, it, but cannabis has an interesting, unique, it, it's always had a unique level of prohibition on this because it is a botanical. And so it was through contract with NIDA that the only source of botanical cannabis for research can be grown. So you have this multi-step uh, gauntlet to prevent any research with cannabis per se, controlled research. Um, and frankly, in the 1980s, uh, and, and of course earlier than that, this, the Controlled Substance Act is from 1970. For those first 20 years or so, honestly, researching drug abuse and drug addiction was not a, a glamorous uh, direction for a neuroscience, uh, you know, an academic neuroscientist lab to do. Um, it, it was kind of look down the nose of, I mean, uh, uh, other neuroscience people pioneering how the mechanics of the brain work. As I've heard from many of my, you know, senior colleagues who were present back then, um, you know, it wasn't, it was looked down on because people, the academic neuroscience community, neuropharmacology community realized how politically biased and motivated it was and they just saw it as weak science um you know looking at a mouse running around in a box and making conclusions about neural um you know mechanisms um but that's what is that's the intent changed. of the mouse <laughs> yeah well i mean that it, it that's that's changed in some ways um and so much has been discovered uh, about the mechanics of the brain over the last 20 years and as far as cannabis goes, the discovery of the endocannabinoid system shifted everything. We came to understand these receptors that THC works on and the endocannabinoids that act uh, like THC. And, you know, we are definitely in a different era now. I mean, any of the National Institutes uh, study endocannabinoids. I mean, the research on, on the endocannabinoid system is massive, including how can, cannabinoids could be therapeutic. But for many years, there was that very clear 
lockdown, and even so, research is greatly biased um, to look at harms related to cannabis as opposed to therapeutic effects that could come from cannabis or uh, other aspects of supporting the endocannabinoid system. Um, anyway, you know, when it comes to this paper, I think what's important to in the the article that I that I wrote that you know cued this conversation. Um, it is true that there are associations between using cannabis frequently in one's you know teenage years and the likelihood of developing psychosis or schizophrenia. One of the most uh, really interesting and and I think open-minded directions that have emerged is scientists looking at this with a more um, open mind to parse it out. And, and saying, well, there are multiple possibilities here. One is the direct causality idea that has been sold to us that using cannabis creates psychosis where it did not exist, that it just causes it. It's this descent into madness. Secondly, that maybe the association is more complicated than that, um, that there are family history matters, genetics or, or environmental um, uh, associations that drive it. And there have been uh, some good, really interesting studies, also really well done in prestigious medical centers and well-published, peer-reviewed, showing that the causality may be in a reverse direction. And this can be a hard thing to wrap your head around, but um, the there is evidence that people who are you know, predisposed, for lack of a better word, to develop schizophrenia. They have genetic risk factors, some of which we know a lot, you know, more and more about, some of which we don't. But individuals who have risk factors for schizophrenia for years prior to developing that first psychotic break, they have this what's called a prodromal um, symptomology or pro, uh, uh, the schizophrenia prodrome. And certain symptoms of schizophrenia come on like anhedonia and apathy we call them the when you're talking about schizophrenia we call these the negative symptoms not not because they're bad and the positive symptoms are good but the schizophrenia is broken up into these things the positive symptoms are said to be things where there's something created that doesn't actually exist like hallucinations and paranoia those are called positive symptoms, not because they're good, but because they've added something to the mind of the, the individual that isn't real. The negative symptoms are those that take away from the from the sufferer or the patient. And excuse me, this this is where you get emotional blunting of your affect and and not feeling pleasure and just being apathetic, which you know, is something that also kind of blends over with just the teenage experience at times. So, you know, you the possibility here, which has been supported by good scientific work that is that has chosen to look for it, is, you know, you, you put yourself in the shoes of someone with, say, a teenager who's gotten withdrawn and, you know, they're grumbly, they're apathetic, they're going through whatever funk Maybe, and especially if you have this family history of of schizophrenia or some other kind of psychotic disorder, um, we can see how this plays out. You know, you discover Johnny has been smoking weed, 
And then that leads to a, a troubled, you know, history where he ends up going psychotic. Um, it's, I think it's, it's natural to blame the substance, especially when you've been conditioned to think that that's what marijuana does. Um, but the reality that has been supported by some really credible research is that someone who's got that prodromal, you know, genetic predisposition is already someone who may be drawn to the therapeutic effects of cannabis, that they find some good outcome from self-medicating with cannabis. And that in and of itself is enough to drive the statistical association. That's not to say that their cannabis habit can't help precipitate the psychotic break, because these people are vulnerable to going into psychosis. And, you know, something that doesn't get said enough is, you know, we this association exists for cigarettes, right? People who are predisposed to cannabis and become, you know, heavy cigarette smokers, that also associates with their psychotic break. Going to college is statistically associated with schizophrenia. That kind of brand new environment away from home, the stress of the experience, social, academic, you know, you name it. I totally went these crazy become, when I went to college. You what? I totally went crazy when I went to college. Well, it is. It is a pressure that is associated with the onset of psychosis. And that is, you know, nobody, it has not driven any political campaign to, you know, prevent kids from going to college because it's a slippery slope into madness um, because people naturally have a more nuanced look to it. You know, when, when you should have more social, so maybe it should be informing the public health approach at the can at the college and that the psychological support for students should keep in mind that, you know, freshman year of college is a chance where somebody who's been prodromal might be more likely to become psychotic. And quite honestly, uh, you know, People who have a, a family history of psychotic disease or they have already been diagnosed with sort of a pre-schizophrenic, schizotypal personality you know, should certainly be very cautious with cannabis. I mean, I'm not here giving, you know, formal medical, advi medical advice. It's a, tricky, it's a tricky question if someone finds therapeutic benefit, but there's some reason to believe that maybe it could cause, you know, a trigger. It could be a triggering event. You know, these people should not be smoking packs of cigarettes. They shouldn't be. Uh, they shouldn't be diving into, you know, doing high dose dab rips. Uh, so, so folks basis. who are are predisposed love, to uh, habituations uh, <laughs> yeah. should should try to stay away from things that actually are actually physically addicting. I, I think it's, it's it's interesting to me too because you 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 I think you actually kind of mentioned a little bit about this, but like you know, as 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 an activist, I kind of think every time somebody badmouths cannabis, there's some sort of malicious intent involved there. But I mean, if you think about it from the point of view and of the patient in this case, it's hard to blame myself. It's easier to blame a substance, you know, and it's hard and, to blame your child. Yeah, you know, it's and that's driven so much, you know, really highly motivated parents mm. have driven so much political change. They really they motivated, you know, the influence that Mothers Against Drunk Driving had uh, is huge. The influence that people 
parents driving political change when their kid has had a, something terrible happen to them and they can blame it on the outside substance of cannabis is enormous. It's really hard to blame your, your child for something when the, 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 the evil weed is right there because blaming your child is kind of blaming yourself too, right? It's like, mm. I didn't do, it was in my genes or I didn't, I didn't do the right thing. Um, and, you know, we, I mean, I, I'm a very holistically thinking person. Like, you got to think broader than that. It's, these are difficult things, but um, blame isn't something, you know, it's, it's situational. But it's not, even, it's not even necessarily blame. Like, I can't, you know, if I'm a schizophrenic, I don't think I can blame myself for being a schizophrenic. It's just kind of something that happens. I don't, I don't necessarily, like, I'm, I'm not entirely familiar with the condition but you know i'd imagine like i don't become a schizophrenic because like i you know i i you know had some bad habit or something like that like atheism <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, you're schizophrenic well, well, you we, we are going to deal with this argument in the next coming legislative session they are going to bring back that 10 percent cap back Bertha Madras and Berenson are going to come back and discuss the DeForte uh, uh, article, and they are going to push the fact that there is, in their minds, there is either a definite link between psychosis and cannabis, or there's just not enough information to belay that possibility. Yeah. And yet, uh, pharma, I'm sorry for a second, uh, the big pharma is actually one of our enemies in this particular instance because they see uh, cannabis as a threat. And yet, we know that there is definitely connections between medication medical use and the onset of say for instance bipolar disorder or like in like tardives kinesia is a, a, a is an aspect of, of use of particular uh, antipsychotics now my, my daughter happened to have um severe uh, migraines and they gave her lamotrigine and amitriptyline olanzapine fx or doxepine topamax and geoton all at the same time to try to, to try to get those and now she is diagnosed with bipolar disorder bipolar issues and she had frontal lobe depression according to the neurologist that we spoke with and so there is actually more almost a more blatant connection between current psychotropics and current antidepressives to psychosis perhaps than, than cannabis or is it another one of those situations of reverse causality it that, that's a good question and you know there's there's a really there's there's kind of someone who's like a classically trained pharmacologist. There's kind of a full a cult of pharmacology in this country about how, you know, that th there's this mystique about the drug, um, the the drug industry, the pharma industry. We love we love them and we hate them. Um, but there's certainly different standards applied. You know, you can't you you don't have a an addiction disorder to uh, a at benzodiazepine if it's prescribed that takes you out of what's you know the diagnostic criterion if it's prescribed it's not an addiction um and i i remember early when we were getting these cbd only laws right and florida was trying to push for its first version even though it was cbd only and i remember seeing this woman who was an ivy league doctor i think a, a emergency doc in dartmouth or something saying we she was greatly concerned about the use of CBD in these epileptic kids because we just don't know long term what the what the outcome is going to be, and yet there are long there are uh, 
experiments going on with our population with molecular psychiatry all the time. I mean, you get different drugs being, you, you get these cocktails of drugs like you were mentioning, and we don't know the long-term effects of three or four or five of these drugs at once, but it still is something that physicians are giving the discretion to practice medicine and do their best with the information that's there. And you talk about this 10% THC issue coming up, and um, I agree, I think it will come back up. And the, the thing about why the, the study that I highlighted in this article I wrote for Project CBD, people can find it on projectcbd.org. Um, There's a link right there. The, <laughs> yeah, and, and the, why I was delighted to see it um, is because this article by two different authors you know, they, they looked at this this question, they broke it down very clearly and said that they clearly were able to refute the idea that cannabis is just like a match that starts psychosis. It's a simple cause and effect. Um, they think that there's definitely evidence that there could be more of the reverse causality, that people who are pre-schizophrenic are also driven to be more likely to take to use cannabis, um, at the, but that anyway, it, at any rate, it's confounded. You know, at worst, cannabis is a, a cannabis use can act something as maybe an accelerant to people who are uh, to young people who are already predisposed or more more likely to experience it. The, and and there's some important points to bring out. One, it is certainly a very different issue because the the vast majority of uh, users and, and the population in general are not going to become psychotic with or without cannabis. Um, but secondly, this question of, of creating a high-low boundary of 10% is, it, it's a fallacy, it's artificial. And um, the the article from that is fueling this latest round of saying there's a 10% cap was a, a study that came out in Lancet Psychiatry in 2019. The the House, is he still the speaker, Ray Rodriguez in Florida? He's pushed this. He's a senator uh, now and he's going to be pushing it again. He just went from one house to the other. They And they're, and importantly, you know, physicians get influenced by these studies. Um, and what they did, I mean, honestly, the, what, what the work did, I think, is just add one other piece to show that heavy cannabis use can promote uh, first-onset psychosis in people who have first-onset psychosis. The reverse causality question could very well be at play, very well. Um, this study was uh, conducted in many different, multiple countries. It calls itself a European study, but it included Brazil. Um, and they basically recruited the the participation of many different uh, wellness. I can't remember if they were particularly psychiatric uh, centers or hospitals, but um, basically psychiatric wards, and and documented people coming in with a first case of psychosis, and then the investigators at these different multiple places in different countries, Spain, Netherlands, England, Brazil, uh, France, they followed you know, similar protocols to question, survey the, 
the patients and find out about their cannabis use. And they were asked to explain what kind of cannabis they used. And, and the decision was made to use, um, to allow people to use their own language, right? And, and they use colloquial terms for whatever they used to t- talk about homegrown or hashish or in UK, they talk about skunk. Um, and w- what happened next, I think, is where there's a real breakdown in the scientific um, strength of, of where they went with it. Because they correlated what people said about their cannabis products with national sort of police records of how strong that substance should be. And this isn't obvious in the paper. I mean, you read the paper and it's just saying, we found out that people who used very high, um, high content, high THC cannabis um, were more likely to have psychosis. I mean, I don't want to simplify what the paper says because it's actually, it's actually hard to read for people who don't really follow um, scientific literature. You, it, and for me, when I see a paper that requires pages of tables of statistics to even show that their results mean anything, you know, you, you kind of have to wonder how strong it is. But again, it's it becomes tricky to even talk about. But my point is, when I started looking very into references within the references, you know, it's like in the in the supplementary material that doesn't even show up in the paper. You got to go to the website and link to the supplementary material to show how they figured all this out. You see that, um, you know, hash in Brazil was given a low THC value. Hash in Spain was a high THC. Homegrown in London was considered potent, but elsewhere it wasn't. Skunk was over 10%, but imported weed in London was lower than 10%. And like, where do you find this? And it, and I, I traced it back there, citing things like these government white paper, papers by European Parliament um, about how to track potency of cannabis. And these things, you know, that's where the, the transparency stopped. It was like, according to, you know, the, the national, you know, police in Sao Paulo, Brazil, this is in, in the, you know, 15 years ago, that's where their potency of cannabis came from. Or from conf- even more, much more recently, you know, confiscated skunk weed in London, you know, tested higher than 10% THC. But you know, my point that I think should resonate with anybody associated with the cannabis industry is that you know, cannabis testing is hard. You, you, we we this is notorious, right? You, the silent shopper programs of testing how much CBD or THC is in a product. You send it to a lab, and you're going to get different results. And a lot of that has technical. You have to calibrate these machines. You have to have reference standards for THC to make sure that your rulers are working right, and you know how much is there. And the idea that national, you know, like police or we have no idea how long these cops are or had the product in their lockers or you know the how what was the chain of custody to show what these percentages were and how was um, it stored of course how was it stored how what were their reference standards because it's not easy to get those standards you gotta have a yeah, dea I mean, it's ridiculous I'm, to think that this is more potent was a more I'm accurate sure way even if you use the same machine and you cut a bud in half Right, and then you just test those two buds separately. You're going to get different results. Still, you have to use, and labs deal with this all the time. You have to use 
validated methods. That's a very, that's a jargon term. To use a validated method means everything, how you grind it, you know, how humid it is, how much moisture content, how it's dissolved and mixed up and put into the HPLC, what the protocols you use, uh, how fast it gets pushed along this little separator. You have to use a, a protocol with it and validate it by showing that it works. And none of that has come into play as far as I can tell with that paper. And yet it came to a very specific, you know, arbitrary distinction that 10% is this sort of high-low boundary. And that's what made, that's what allowed them to tease some results out. Because clearly, if they look at the lower than 10%, there's no link to psychosis. Like, they couldn't make that stretch. That's where you draw a boundary and say, well, can we find it? And I'm putting words in their mouth, but I'm, I have reason to be cynical about this work. I think you put this 10% boundary and say, ah, now we find it. It's only with the potent weed. And we do all these different statistics. And you start to find this uh, statistical association with what, it, when they weren't even looking at psychosis, they were looking at just a singular episode of, I mean, they weren't looking at schizophrenia. They were looking at a singular first episode of psychosis, which could have been somebody who, for all we know, was still, you know, suffering the after effects of eating way too many cookies. Um, you know, maybe they tried to control for that. These, these aren't dumb people that do it. They're not. And these papers, this one in particular, has the mystique of tremendous prestige because it's in like eight different countries. And so you get all these national funding, you know, institutes listed on the paper and uh, many different authors. And as I make a note in my article in Project CBD, that sometimes has greater political influence than the details of the science itself. Um, look how impactful this and and not just influencing politicians but influencing people like the uh state medical boards that have huge influence in lobbying to make change and so addressing it with a clear head and with like modern scientific rationale and and methodology is so important that's why i'm happy to sing the praises and help translate the findings of these authors um that published the new study in the in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, because the the notion that this reverse causality idea that being a likely schizophrenic actually enhances your use your likelihood of using cannabis rather than you accident you 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 got duped into using cannabis and now you're schizophrenic. That reverse causality is very grounded in rigorous, intelligent cycle, uh, uh, scientific analysis. And it, the entire field needs to be interpreted with that in mind. You know, that needs to be part of the lens that the entire history of linking cannabis and psychosis is viewed through, regardless of your political, you know, background or inclination. And so you got to have these breakdowns on that level using that scientific language to temper um the the notions that get thrown at um these these rulemaking processes i mean it's easy to say oh dude the cat's out of the bag the toothpaste is out of the tube you're not going to be able to put a new clamp down and restriction on thc products 
but it could happen. It absolutely could happen. And I am not doing this out of, I mean, I do have personal and financial um, interest in the cannabis industry now. Um, but I'm not saying any of this because I'm planning on getting rich off of high THC products. Um, it, it's just important for us to understand that that bugaboo isn't just doesn't justify what's it's being used to to justify to try and accomplish and also you know probably one of my next articles that i'll I really want to get ahead on is just this fascination we have with percents anyway um you know marinol has been an approved fda approved medicine for decades and if you want to just look at percent thc it's over 95% THC. I mean, it's THC in a pill. Um, so is I, I remember when the state of Florida first came out with medical marijuana and like flour wasn't allowed, but I could buy dabs and like, it made no, no sense whatsoever. Um, Greg, I, I got to ask you too, man. Um, so we, we're talking a lot about THC and the 10% cap and, how it's, you know, uh, it could be helpful for, for the brain, but it's, you know, it's the, the cap is based off of this stigma or whatnot. What about other cannabinoids? Me and Gary have a mutual friend that's been using CBG to, to help restore some brain functions. At least that's his claim. I want to know, um, how useful are these, are these cannabinoids in treating schizophrenia and not necessarily THC, but the whole gamut you know well i mean we don't really know how useful it is in treating schizophrenia other than that that people with schizophrenia have reported that they use cannabis for you know to and find benefit from it and this creates a certain irony if it does precip if it does advance the disease in some cases is it a, a case of using something that you find improves your quality of life but may lead to a greater diagnosis down the way. Um, as far as honing in on a cannabinoid like CBG, I don't know. I, I mean, I, there's such a, this is such an exciting moment of where we could research and explore therapeutic, you know, potentials for other cannabinoids. We have n no doubt that there's lots of therapeutic potential for other cannabinoids. I don't. I haven't really seen a, a a good case for CBG being useful for schizophrenia, but I'm not going to dismiss that if someone's experience, they're they're getting good effect, that maybe there's something there. Um, you know, it's. I think there's a a real responsibility and opportunity as cannabis policy is reforming and you're getting this industry come into place, that the cannabis industry needs to take the lead in trying to research. And, and that includes what we call pharmacovigilance research um, to follow through on um, potential risks, right? Um, you know, we should be collecting data on what cannabis users, you know, experience. And, you know, if we, if we come to find out that certain cannabinoid, you know, content is associated with a greater likelihood for some sort of risk then the industry needs to be able to to help find that um but back to your specific question no i don't know about cbg and and any um psychiatric 
diagnosis. Um, I've known some people who have been experiencing, have been you know using high CBG tinctures and uh, extracts, and really like the way they make them feel. I mean, I've heard people say like, oh, I just I feel really confident with it. Um, I'm interested in exploring CBG. We'll be seeing so much more of that because as you, I'm sure most of your listeners are aware, um, and you definitely are, Carlos, working with a CBD store. Um, CBG is everywhere right now. I mean, it, the, the 2020 hemp growing season including included much more access to seeds that would produce high CBG flower. Um, and there's a whole lot of it that was planted. There's a whole lot of it coming down um, in harvest this year. And there's going to be lots of CBG out there. Um, so I'm really interested to see how well with so many like app-based, you know, survey research that is, goes on, what we will tease out of it. Um, as far as like the really rigorous research with CBG, I mean, there's evidence that shows it could be beneficial in prostate cancer. There's evidence that shows that it is useful. It has strong antibiotic properties like other cannabinoids do, but CBG is really one that's gotten, you know, some, some signal in these studies looking at like uh, properties against like MRSA, you know, meth resistant Staph aureus. Um, and we'll just have to be careful. I mean, we'll see where that goes, right? It doesn't mean necessarily, you know, that probably has applications in healthcare settings. Well, you, you made an interesting point when you brought out the disclaimer you that I'm not really involved in the cannabis industry. And, well, you are, but, but not to the extent where you'll be actually be trying to make any money off of doing these, these uh, articles for T CBG. We have a lot of studies out there that uh, suffer from what I called sponsorship bias which basically means that studies cost money. If they're not being done at a university level and being put through a general silo, generally you have a drug company or somebody else who sponsors that study and therefore comes up with what I call the Von Donikin effect, where you come to a foregone conclusion and then you find cherry-picked evidence to try to verify what you, what you said at the beginning, which is when the scientific experiment is basically exactly the opposite. You start from data and develop a theory as opposed to starting a theory and then finding something that fits it. Well, the interest, I mean, the, 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 the risk and the, the concern of bias in research is, is always there. Um, you know, science is, is kind of the original uh, enemy to fake news. I mean, the whole reason <laughs> of scientific method is to challenge one's own assumptions. I mean, the, literally, anyone who really studies statistics or has taken that college statistics course and remembers the, the notion of statistical tests is actually completely based on the idea of, of assuming that you're wrong. You got to test the idea, the null hypothesis, the null hypothesis that yes. you're not actually right. And, and the mathematics of probability depends on that. But a lot of times it's not always done right. But anyway, you know, I used to, when I was a college professor at Eckerd there in St. Pete, um, I would give articles to some of my students in my pharmacology classes. And I was interested to see how these some of these kids would sit would would recognize and say, well, this was funded by National Center on Drug Abuse, so you can't trust that it's biased, um, and that that would put me in the devil's advocacy because I mean it doesn't mean that it's biased, but uh, it, and these were very Type A like pre med students. They weren't like just people who wanted to support you know cannabis, but yeah, the point is. Science always has benefactors, 
um, and whether it's, uh, you know, the the I'm I'm getting a little taught up in my head trying to think of historical examples. You know, like Rene Descartes, who invented calculus and was a tremendous philosopher. I mean, he paid his bills by at one time in his life, you know, by, by being a tutor to the children of royalty, you know, I mean, we, we all have benefactors. Um, but the notion is to, I think the importance is that the, the method of science is left to be objective and blinding yourself. This is the importance of blinding, um, scientists to research whether it's clinical or in a lab um and it's it's not always done but bias sneaks in in very pernicious ways right and back to the case in point the funding for looking at cannabis has been for decades targeted towards finding negative outcomes and that absolutely does factor in in the hypotheses that you propose how you run the tests in the in the lab or the clinic, and how you interpret them in the discussion papers of your article, because a scientist is going to think, if I don't continue to at least point in the direction of the hypothesis that cannabis will cause addiction or it'll cause craz craziness or uh, you know what have you, then my likelihood of considering of continuing funding is going to be diminished. I mean, it absolutely has been this pernicious bias driving research oh, and that's part of my you know bottom line that i always end up praising and getting so excited about the discoveries of the endocannabinoid system because discovering the endocannabinoids has like liberated cannabis from this strictly drug abuse paradigm because now you're, you're looking at this mechanism of homeostasis and well-being in the body and asking if we tweak that system with drug use, how does it affect things? And it's it's different. Um, when I first started reading the scientific literature on cannabis 25 years ago, and looking backwards too in, in the writings, the papers, first of all, there were much fewer scientific articles and you could actually read and know all of them, but they always started the same way. Like cannabis is the most used illegal drug in the world, you know, and <laughs> then, everything started shifting where the first paragraph of those articles were like cannabis has been used therapeutically for thousands of years but we need to know more about it um you know so the the whole tone has changed in in research i mean it's still probably biased towards finding harms but there's lots of outlets out there to research medical and therapeutic you know mechanisms of the endocannabinoid system and it's not all pigeonholed into, into the negative. Well, if I had to pick one phrase we heard more than any other phrase in the whole debate in regards to CAPS in the last two years is we have to follow the science. Right. And the question is whether that, that, that science is, is, is rightful or not, if it's biased or not. And when it comes up again this next coming session, and I'm certain that it will, I know that they're going to bring back Berenson. If you're up to it, I'd love to see it. I would pay. I would buy the popcorn to see you <laughs> debate Berenson uh, on the topic with uh, his intuition and your actual science. 
Well, you know, the, in in get it. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I, you know, now I live up in in West Virginia. Um, and I'm less inclined to go to Tallahassee, but um, we'll see if the speaker will pay for you to come down because he pays for Berenson to come anyway. Well, you know, Berenson has has been. Um, he's he's appeared in some public events that did not go his way. Um, I, you know, <laughs> Professor Mitch Early Wine has spoken head to head with him. Peter Grinspoon um, has uh, given head-to-head sort of uh, a critique of Berenson. Uh, some other guy was on the Joe Rogan podcast with Berenson. He, these arguments have been made, um, but you're right. The catchphrase is, we, gotta, you know, we have to follow the science, and that's why it's so important that there is science out there saying if you, if you follow the science, you can't blame cannabis like it's a smoking gun. So following the science means, hey, why don't you put some money towards actual public health education and putting this kind of dialogue out there instead of pumping millions into, Hey, smoke weed and drive. We'll give you a ticket. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, there needs to be a, a real public health direction towards it. I mean, I agree that cannabis policy is changing in many different ways. It's get, being more accessible to people. Um, and there may be other health concerns that pop up about that, but follow the science and you'll see that it doesn't create a, you know, spiraling health crisis of psychosis. It doesn't create increases in addiction or even increases in teen use in states that legalize. And you may have more people in car crashes that have THC in their system when it's more widely used, but if you follow the science, putting people on closed courses driving, whether they've used 10% cannabis or 8% cannabis or, you know, a 60% THC vape pen. Right. There's not science really. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I don't think somebody should be plugging up a dab rig into their car and, and <laughs> taking a high, a, a, a real high dose and driving. But ultimately, I mean, I don't think somebody should take a prescription, uh, uh, and histamine and and drive e either until and this is the same this is this where the rubber hits the road for me when it comes to that this uh, we should have a similar standard that cannabis should be have warning labels that you don't drive or operate machinery until you know how this medicine affects you and after that you know it's like these other drugs that can make you sleepy um, you know but again follow the science. Um, on this 10% THC cap, it's just not, um, it's not grounded. It's not realistic. Cannabis is always, there's always been cannabis that's higher than 10%. I mean, yeah, it was less, you know, the, the cannabis has become much more sophisticated, you know, it's starting with widespread growing of sensimia. I mean, just having the, agronomy down where males are separated and you get these big luscious female flowers that don't have seeds in them that in itself itself doubles the potency of thc and and that in the you know coming into the 80s when you started getting more controlled breeding and growing like that enhanced potency but that didn't mean that people weren't smoking greater than 10 percent weed in the 60s and 70s um you know we should monitor the notion <laughs> high potency t THC is around and it needs to be viewed professionally, but just putting some uh, 
putting some cap that will completely change the experience that people it it i'm not sure what even all the motivations of that are but it is not scientifically proven that uh, using 15 percent thc is a you know getting on the route to psychosis that's the bottom line of it that the science does not support that no okay. it, it comes back to this uh quite often it's that we need more research and you know um it, it's an interesting stigma that this is actually something that the guys that are trying to point their finger at us actually need to research a little bit more and be a little bit more thorough on their findings so that's it's an interesting topic you know yeah but we want to thank dr greg gerdman phd neuroscientist and really smart cannabis guy for coming in and, and helping decipher this because yeah. this is going to be the battle we have this next session we have right. a lot of bills we have to go through and this one's going to be a major one now I, I put you down there as a neuroscientist because the article uh, uh, lists you as one or calls you a neuroscientist, but you primarily consider yourself to be a biologist, right? Well, well, yeah, I, I and I always have to wrestle with how to title myself. I'm, I mean, <laughs> I'm a smart guy is a good way to go. I'm, endo <laughs> I'm an endocannabinology OG. Um, no, I mean. I come into this as someone studying the brain, um, mm -hmm. and and that was my direction. Uh, my PhD is in pharmacology. Probably would have been in neuroscience, but Vanderbilt didn't have a PhD degree in neuroscience at that time. Um, it, but over the years, you know, it was through my study of the brain and the mechanisms of how cannabis works that I gravitated into the medical cannabis movement, you know? Because, you know, it, it became clear to me that there not only is real evidence for cannabis as medicine, but I've helped to uncover some of it, that it's neuroprotective. I've been one element. You know, my work was part of a whole convergence of work. Well, this is a plant that requires... Giving modern show. This, this plant requires, a, obviously, a highly multidisciplinary approach. It does. And I've studied... Uh, you know, I've had opportunities since I've been involved with, uh, you know, one of the MMTCs in Florida, and I started as a chief scientist and, and app, app writer for Three Voice Farm. And, you know, during a time when I was going to be working on product formulations, I ended up leading integrative pest management in the greenhouse. So I, I spent over a year um, really working with the cannabis plant, sitting with great growers. Um, over time, in other contexts, I've, you know, I've I have people I call myself friends who I think are some of the most impactful cannabis breeders of the past hundred years. Um, I've been really privileged to sit with a lot of experts. So I have, a, I've developed a wide expertise in things related to the human cannabis relationship. And I can, yeah, I consider just, um, I used to think neuroscience was just the most, I mean, that's where I've gotten the most fascination in my life, but studying the endocannabinoid system is even broader net than neuroscience because it's throughout the body. It's a driving force and evolutionary change in my view. And, um, you know, so I kind of consider myself, and my good friend, Dr. Sunil Agarwal kind of was the first to use the term cannabinology and, uh, I like to consider myself a cannabinologist. 
Well, we're we're both lucky to to know you, man. (laughs) And you know, you talk about how you you've had the pleasure to work with a lot of great people. I can speak for Gary and myself when we say we're lucky to have worked with you and to consider you a friend. Thanks, brother. It's good to get on here. And of course, here comes the commercial. If you want to be part of the change in regards to cannabis and its legalization and all the things that need to be fixed in the current legislation in regards to employee protection, uh, institutional protection, home grow possibilities, get involved by being a part of Suncoast Normal. We are a membership-driven organization. And for a short fee uh, and going to suncoastnormal.org you can become a member and if you are a business who like to see more of what we do here at the rotation become a patron become a sponsor come and contact us and we will tell you the ins and outs of how you can be on top of the situation yeah you can be featured in a commercial you can be mentioned on the show we could have you on as a guest on the actual show so, uh, yeah, uh, get in contact with us. There's tons of ways to promote your business as cannabis friendly and accepting of change. There's also other ways you can volunteer for Suncoast Normal. We got an event coming up in December that we're going to announce pretty soon. Uh, so we're going to need volunteers for those events, volunteers at other events representing the organization, things like that. Uh, also follow us on social media at Suncoast Normal. That's N-O-R-M-L. Um, on Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, Facebook, all of that stuff. It's at Suncoast Normal. That's N-O-R-M-L. And of course, our website again is www.suncoastnormalnorml.org. And you get this really neat gold pin as a member of uh, not only Suncoast Normal, but National Normal as well. The National Organization for the Reformation of Marijuana Laws. We try to get them to change it to cannabis laws, but no one likes the sound of Norkel. So I guess we're going to keep that with normal. <laughs> and, and you can be a part of it. You can be part of the change. Looking forward to having you on the rotation next week. And Greg, uh, thanks for being on the show. Anything else you, uh, you want to contribute here? No, I'm good. I, I appreciate doing it. Um, I, I don't normally do a webinar in the morning, so I think I may have been a little scattered at the beginning, but uh, it's been good coming on. And, I, I, you know, maybe I'll drop some things when you post this about my own, you know, directions. I'm going to be getting, a, I'm going to be doing a lot. I've got some projects on cannabis education for the industry that um, is going to be getting more, going to be launched in the next, you know, couple months that I'll be involved in and trying to talk up a lot. And um, otherwise, uh, I just uh, direct people to that Project CBD article. And um, that's a really great site that I've contributed to since before it became it, what it is. And, uh, and, and I always point people to Project CBD as a great reference. And and I'll see if I can't get the new speaker to drag you out of wheeling and bring you over here to, uh, to, to speak up against, uh, Dr. Bertha Madras (laughs) and Mr. Berenson. I I say that with love. (laughs) No, no, I mean, it's actually, we should talk about it because I do have some interest in, uh, obviously in, in Florida and, um, and I, I want that should not be where the state goes. I don't think it's likely, but you gotta be, you, you gotta talk science. 
We uh, even go back into that nanogram uh, per milliliter of blood uh, blood discussion as well, but that's the topic for another yeah, day. Yeah, right. All right, gentlemen. All well, right, guys. I will let you go. Take it easy. Thanks for having Appreciate me. you guys. Cheers. Bye. Take care. Bye. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This has been The Rotation, and you have been a part of it. You can be a bigger part of it by joining Suncoast Normal. Suncoast Normal is an organization that can help you make the change that we all need. Go to the Suncoast Normal website and become a member, because that is how you become part of the change. You can find The Rotation podcast on both SoundCloud and iTunes. But you can always join us in the rotation at suncoastnormal.org. At that very website, you can join the cannabis movement by becoming a member of Suncoast Normal, gain access to cannabis events, cannabis info, Normal's legal network, and even a free membership to National, all by joining Suncoast Normal. That website again is suncoastnorml.org. You can also find us on social media at Suncoast Normal. Uh, find us on both Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And thank you, Gary, and good night. Good night.